Hey everyone, this is your professor Andrew, and I'm coming to you from a school called Holy Names University in Oakland. And um, I'm here on a trip for CBU, completing a training for my job, working with accreditation and assessment and things like that. And so um, you can see I'm in a dorm room. They have us staying in dorm rooms when we're up here. But um, I just wanted to give you this last lecture from Paul's letters regarding the pastoral epistles. So the pastorals are a really interesting group of letters. It's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And <clears throat> typically I don't know that they're preached from very often in churches because I think a lot of people have this feeling that they're most relevant to church leaders. So like other pastors or when I was in seminary, we would get a lot of chapel sermons about, you know, that came from the pastorals. But when I'm mean, trying to think on a Sunday morning at church, do I, I don't often hear a sermon from the pastorals. And I think that's because of the, the audience that these were originally written to. However, the interesting thing about the pastoral epistles is that you can tell when you're reading them that they weren't just written for that one recipient to be to be reading it. So like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, so written to Timothy and Titus, they weren't only written for them to read it. Like there's this awareness that Paul has as he's writing these letters that they will be read aloud and that the church will read them as well. And so in a sense, there is an obligation within the pastorals for the church as well. So if Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word, for example, their, their response should be to listen to the word preached and to obey the word preached. So it's kind of, it's a, it's kind of a, um, you know, you, you have to think kind of critically about how communication works, but if someone shows up in a church and, and reads this letter, or if Timothy reads, gets this letter and then decides to read it in the church, then, um, then there's definitely kind of a, a an authority that's being um, given to Timothy when Paul says, hey, um, you know, I'm giving you this authority to appoint elders, for example, or um, that um, you should teach what, what, what is in accord with sound doctrine, that the church should seek to obey sound doctrine. So, um, so there's there's more going on here, I guess, than just a letter to a pastor. There's also Paul also has the church in view as well. So, um, yeah, like we just said, written to pastors concerning pastoral ministry and leadership. That's why they're called the pastoral epistles. So interesting word about interesting thing about the word pastor is um, in the New Testament there is a uh, a word that is translated pastor but it only shows up a few times and i would actually if anyone is interested in this i would challenge you to go into the bible web app program that i've shown you and to go to the word uh, search for the word pastor um, you can see it in ephesians and you can also see it in um, i believe it's first peter um, 
most of the time in the New Testament, the word pastor refers to an actual shepherd, um, or it refers to Jesus as the kind of pastor of, of the whole church. So Jesus is the, and so a pastor is actually just a shepherd. It's like someone that would take care of a flock of sheep, you know, it's just a very literal word, but it's also a word that has come to be used in the New Testament as a, an expression of how a uh, church leader should take care of the church, should take care of God's people. And so like a shepherd takes care of the flock, makes sure they have everything they need, guards them from dangers. That's what a pastor is supposed to do as well. So pastor actually comes from a Latin translation of this Greek word poimen, which, um, so, but my point is, it's actually not that common of a word in the New Testament, and it's, and it's not always exactly clear how it is that it applies in a given context. Um, more common, what we see is the word overseer, which also could be translated as bishop, um, and the word elder, which is, um, I mean, it's kind of like you would think of <clears throat> like an elder, like a, an old, it could be used as a term meaning like an, an older church leader or someone in a position of authority. So the pastorals, because they're written to pastors, they're written to people who are in charge of churches. So Timothy and Titus, these, these letters have, um, <clears throat> these letters are, um, concerning how these leaders are to appoint other leaders. And so that's a, um, an important piece of what we're going to be talking about with respect to the pastoral epistles. Now, again, like, like always, there's some, there's a lot of good information that's discussed in your book and in the Bible project videos. And so I don't want to waste your time by going over that again. I want to, I want to highlight some things that I think are important and things that we might be um, kind of picking up on in class, or if there's something in your reading that we want to pick up on in class, then by all means, let's go ahead and do that. But, um, in terms of the particular situations that um, first, uh, first Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus were written to, um, then I'll let you look into your book for that. But these are the most likely the last letters written by Paul that we have in the New Testament, um, written mid to late sixties. And so, as your book notes, First Timothy and Titus were probably written, there's a tradition that Paul was released from prison after, um, the, at the end of Acts, you know, he's in prison and he's, um, preaching the gospel and the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and Paul is there. Um, and, uh, the tradition is that he was released from that imprisonment and that, um, his ministry continued until he was later imprisoned again and then was executed. And so we we could put these in that period where he was in ministry after his that, that first imprisonment in Rome, but before his last one, it doesn't seem like from 1 Timothy and Titus that he's in prison, but in 2 Timothy, it actually does seem like he is, and he's awaiting the end of his life. So he does probably suspect here in these letters that, you know, he's kind of coming to the end of his run, 
and so he's trying to pass on some of the the wisdom that he's gained from his years of ministry and uh, onto these church leaders and he's trying to look in order to to kind of provide them something that they can um, kind of work from so a little bit more uh, we see a, a developed we would call maybe a more developed Christology a high Christology as we've talked about before um, where Paul has continued to reflect upon who Jesus is and we see some very explicit statements of of Jesus's um, identity as Savior Jesus's identity as God and so um, we see that and we also see some more established patterns of what churches are supposed to kind of look like in a certain sense and so we'll go ahead and, and, and jump into those as we go work through the, the books um, just briefly but what I would say what did Paul really care about in the pastorals? Um, Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus to promote leadership that was faithful to the gospel that he proclaimed, resulting in churches that were faithful to Jesus and represented him well. And um, so where I get this is that it seems like Paul is starts in the letters with kind of some things that he wants the leader to do like Timothy or Titus so like whether that's preaching sound doctrine or um, setting up the church in a particular way um, honoring certain character uh, traits he works from there out into how that impacts people within the church and what they should be doing um, in the church and so I, I, I think that he has in view the way that the the leader of the church impacts the people that are that are under them that that they're shepherding that they're that they're leading and then also how that represents um, the gospel and Jesus to people that are outside the church so it works I think from the the way he's envisioning it from the leader of the church down into the the people that are being led that the the followers of Jesus out into how how Jesus and the gospel are viewed in the world and so it's very I think it's a very practical thing for us to think about okay where do we fit in that in those three groups right the leader the people within the church that are being led and the people outside the church who are looking in on the church and so there's a concern I mean it's so interesting because we talk so much about the fact as as Christians that we don't want to care what the what the world thinks about us or we don't want to um, be concerned with their opinions but I would actually say that Paul would say no you should be concerned to the extent that if you're making Jesus or the gospel look bad then that's bad you know you're being a bad representation of Jesus to the world so he has his eye on that and I would say like we don't want to care in terms of like um, and what the world cares about in terms of you know um like oh you don't do a b and c you know you don't party or whatever it is you know uh, if, if that's your if that's your thing i don't think that I, I think that that makes sense you know if we have an ethical conviction that's based on um based on the gospel then then we want to stick with that we don't want to care when people question that and like you know peer pressure and all those kind of things but i think that it is important to 
to have that in mind and think about how is this going to be perceived by people the way that I'm saying this? Like, am I saying this in a way where it makes sense to people and that I'm not just offending people for the sake of offending people, but that it is actually like I'm, I'm, I'm using gospel language that I'm, I'm trying to, um, to represent Jesus well, basically is the point. So I think that there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. And I think there's a lot that could be gained for, for everyone. Um, so we'll go ahead and just walk through a few things that I wanted to, to hit on with you. Um, so, uh, first starting in first Timothy, I want to highlight some of the things that he talks about with respect to the difference between men and women within the church. There's a lot of debate that's gone on, um, on these, on, on this topic within the evangelical. So that would be evangelical. Like Cal Baptist is an evangelical school, the conservative Christian churches, because typically outside of conservative um, evangelical churches, this is not really as much of a question anymore. There's no, there's no questions about the differences between the roles of men and women. They, where they would go with that is, is back to Galatians, where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. They would say that, that in that Paul elevates the status of, um, or elevates isn't a good word, but he removes any differentiation between the positions of leadership that men and women can have. Whereas in Cal Baptist is a part of this group in, in a more conservative environment, people still, there's a, the, the way that scripture is read, you would still draw divisions between appropriate roles that men and women can hold within the church. And so you see often, we've seen this elsewhere in Paul's letters, but in the pastorals, it's really explicit. You see often the, um, you know, men should do this, women should do this, um, men. So let's look in chapter three real quick. Um, um, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble, noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And right before that, you see in verse 11 of chapter 2, Let a, a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So, big, big issues here in terms of interpretation. There's a lot of questions. So... For example, some people have said that they think that Paul was responding to a particular situation that was going on in Ephesus at the time. So maybe there was a problem where women were, um, the, there were the women in the church were becoming particularly like, for lack of a better term, like rowdy and obnoxious in, in the, in the 
church meetings. And so, um, and so Paul is writing that kind of saying, like, that group of women should be, should be silent and learn submissively. So maybe Timothy had written to Paul and said, dude, I've got these, this group of particular women. And he's writing back and saying, yeah, those women are, you know, they need to, to learn quietly. Um, so that's one of the things, um, that goes on here. I, what I don't think this means is that, and this is how some people have interpreted this, is that literally women are not allowed to talk during like a church service, for example. I don't think that that makes any sense because we see other places in the New Testament where there are women talking in a in a church gathering context and in a gathering of believers. And so I think that that doesn't, it's not consistent. So I go, okay, so it's not that, that's maybe a very extreme interpretation that people have, but it's not that interpretation. Um, but there is something going on here. And so um, the question is whether that, that admonition to have women remain, um, like to learn, to learn quietly, like to, to be, to be quiet, um, that whether that is bound to a particular context or whether that is um, kind of for all time. So that's an, that's an open question um, for a lot of people. Um, the following passage, um, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, this is a really interesting um, conversation, I think, to have that I want to have with you guys if we have time when we're together because I think that there is something here because right after that Paul kind of goes into this discussion of Adam and Eve so kind of a creation he's he's basing his argument on creation um, but then at the same time I go okay so there's a really extreme way that I could understand this which is that no male um, no male can be under any authority of a female, right? So that would be like, you know, so when I worked at Subway when I was a teenager, you know, the sandwich shop, my manager was a female and my supervisors were all females. And so that would be like, I would say, um, they can't, they're not allowed to teach me anything. They're not allowed to have authority over me. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true either. Um, I think, or like my son's preschool teacher was a female. And so we would say like, well, I think that's great that, you know, he has a female preschool teacher. Um, there's a lot of issues involved here. So the question is like, what is a man, right? It says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So what is a man? What does it mean to teach? What does it mean to exercise authority? I think that it's okay to say here that Paul doesn't have in view, like, in any context ever, that a woman can't teach or exercise authority over a man, like, then we couldn't have any, like, female politicians, we couldn't have any female CEOs, and I think that those are all, um, I think those are things that probably Paul would be in favor of. The, um, in theory, I, I guess I don't know, I've never asked him, <laughs> but it seems like within a particular context of a of a church where he's talking about this thing of like elders and overseers this thing of like roles within the church 
of leadership that that typically as the argument goes that he's talking about women should not have the office of elder or overseer which a lot of people consider are synonymous and so um we don't have time to go into the whole all the issues associated with that but that's definitely that's the position of the southern baptist convention which cal baptist is a part of that's um so that's where i would kind of put myself is in that boat i might nuance it a little bit but we would um as a school kind of and as a school of christian ministries for example that's where we would find ourselves is in the camp of folks that say that we want to see women in as many roles um as we as as our um as they're gifted to do but there's this, just this kind of one role which is this this role of authority um over a church like over a whole church an elder um or overseer slash what some might call pastor that we are not um we'd say that's limited to a man but that there's so many other things as well that women as the as they're gifted to do just the same as men as they're gifted to do um should should pursue um in service to god and so just want to bring that up as an issue i think if you wanted to do some research about it and talk about it um in class that would be i think that'd be a, a good discussion to have because that is one of the key kind of tension points between what we would consider kind of a more conservative reading of scripture often and maybe a more progressive reading of scripture um just the different ways that people have approached this um so conversation ongoing um definitely willing to um to talk about it more um he also talks about deacons at the at the uh, in the latter part of chapter three. Now, deacons would be another word for deacon is like a minister, or um, the word kind of means like servant a little bit that kind of idea. Someone whose work so you have elders whose work is kind of more um, in the realm of authority leadership, and then you have deacons who their role seems to be more like a um, like a someone in if you if you've gone to church before maybe the person who after church you know maybe helps clean up the church or the people who maybe in church if there's a, a communion service or something like that where they're handing out the body the 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 bread and the and the juice or the wine representing the body and blood of jesus that they're the ones that are handing that out um so these are like typically thought to be um some maybe you could think of them maybe as leaders but mostly the point is that they are they they help um help do the ministry of the church right um so um an issue here that's debated often would be whether there can be female deacons because it's not explicitly stated really that there are so we would call it a deacon and a deaconess for example and um, I would say yes, and this is where kind of a, a translation thing comes into play. Um, so we'll just go ahead and read. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, verse 11 is where it 
gets interesting. It says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So that's my translation, the ESV, um, that I'm using right here. But if you look, so I have a note, and I go down to the note, and it says, uh, or women likewise must be. And I think that is actually the translation I would choose, because there's no... Um, there's in in Greek you would normally see a pronoun they would say it would say like wives of them so like deacons you would say like um, the wives of the deacons right but you don't actually see that it just says women likewise and so but the word in Greek for woman and wife is actually the same word gunaikos um, and so so there's a question there of whether the the there if the, the if t-h-e-i-r if that was there if there was there in in the greek text i would say it's no question it would be saying their wives however i would kind of say like i think probably um it's saying women uh likewise must be so i think that he's saying that there are male male deacons and women deacons which we would call deaconesses so that is um something important to notice uh, within first timothy if we move on to second timothy <clears throat> we see again um, this whole idea of of uh, timothy continuing on in the ministry that has been provided to him by paul um oh yeah one other thing sorry i meant to mention about church leadership is there's a lot of different models of church leadership that we see today there's th i would say three main ones um the first one is called the um the episcopal model which episcopal means bishop and um you see this in our passage here again the word overseer could also be translated bishop so in first timothy three um episcopal which um, that would be um, Methodists have an Episcopal um, model, Anglicans, Catholics, anyone that has a bishop in their hierarchy is going to be typically considered Episcopal. Now there, are, there is a, a, a kind of a newer way that some churches are using the word bishop. So specifically in the Pentecostal church, the word bishop is used as maybe someone who is a pastor over a larger group of people or a pastor that, um, so like I went to a church went back when I was going to Pentecostal churches um, that had a bishop. And um, I think they, they meant it as just someone who had a lot of authority, um, maybe kind of like how we have, you know, in an organization you might have a director or you might have like several directors and then you have an executive director over them. So maybe that's kind of how they think of it. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I mean, that's kind of just my interpretation of it. So, um, so that doesn't count in this. That's not actually an Episcopal model. That's just kind of using that word, I think, maybe in a little bit of a different way. Um, but anyway, so you see, but you do see in the early church, you see bishops arising and, um, and you see, um, uh, bishops of particular cities so there might be a, one bishop in charge of a, a group of churches in a, in, a, in a city and that when they wanted to make a decision like a count like a council to, to decide about a creed or something like that all the bishops from all the different cities would get together and that's what we see for example in like Nicaea 
as all of these these bishops getting together. So they're the kind of designated church leaders. So that's an Episcopal model. You have what's called the Presbyterian model, which obviously Presbyterians practice. Um, they're the primary ones. There are some other groups, I think, that practice the Presbyterian model, but that is where basically you have um, elders. So the word for elder is presbyteros, which is um, which is where you get the word Presbyterian. So you have elders in a church. They are all, um, it's a group. It's called a plurality of elders. And they, um, they will lead a church and then they will all submit to kind of a regional group called the presbytery and that regional group <clears throat> are kind of the the leaders for for a, an area and then that group goes up to is led by another group and then it goes kind of all the way up into the denomination so there's multiple different kinds of of um presbyterians there's orthodox presbyterians presbyterian church in america presbyterian church usa they all come from um scottish presbyterian church way back um, in the Reformation period, started by John Knox, but um, the point is that they focus on elders. Okay, so Episcopal focuses on bishops, because Episcopos, bishop or overseer. Presbyterian focuses on elders, presbyteros, Presbyterian. And then you have what's called congregational, and this is what Baptists are. They're um, they're very unique in this way. This is one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a Baptist is that you're congregational, and what that means is it's actually very interesting. It's kind of a it's a democratic process where each church member is seen to have a particular authority within themselves, and so that that's where you see in some churches like voting for a pastor, voting for um, someone to be a deacon, voting on a constitution, forming a committee to work on a project or something like that and make a decision to make a recommendation to the church. At my church, for example, which is a Southern Baptist church, the um, the church, anytime we have to spend over like $5,000 on something, I think, we all have to get together and vote on it. So the pastor can't just go and spend the money. And where they would go with this typically would be where be where we've seen before Matthew 18, where they see that Jesus provides this authority to the church um, to basically decide who is in and who's out. He's saying that, you know, when someone sins and if they're not repenting of their sin and you've confronted them, then the church, you bring it to the church. You don't bring it to the, the elder or the pastor, you bring it to the whole church and that that the church has the authority to decide whether that person is in or out. So congregationists, congregationalists would typically say, well, that means that there's this tremendous authority within the church to decide who is actually a church member and who isn't. So the, oh, there's also something called the free church movement, um, or independent churches, and those are churches that are kind of standalone. But Baptists are um, um, a, a, this congregational movement. So my point in bringing all of this up so that you, I'm sure that you've probably wondered about this before, I think, um, is just to say that there are lots of different models of church leadership. And I think that there's evidence in scripture um, that could lead to a variety of different models. And so um, I wouldn't say that there's, there's one, there's one kind of contender that of these different models that is clearly the best in the way that, like, if you don't choose this one, um, that it, 
it um like you're you're in sin or something like that um i do i think that there's a lot of factors that go into play like for example if you are if you are in a, in a context you know like if you were to go overseas and plant a church in china or something like that where um maybe there weren't a lot of believers before there's some cities where there are not a lot of christians in china um i mean there's some cities like that in the u.s but anyway um i have friends that are doing ministry over there and they say you know like when they plant a church they're not like paul says like if someone's a recent convert they're not going to appoint elders right away and so there's going to be a different church model going on there they might place themselves under the authority of another church somewhere else and that person kind of that's their link to authority um my point is that there's a lot there's a, a lot that goes into this discussion and i don't want it to seem like there's there's very it's very clearly one particular option but i do think that there's there's evidence in favor of each of them i'm just kind of where where we've landed as a school where i've landed um is this what's called congregational approach but anyway enough of that so go on to um second timothy um again we see uh this is the the letter where paul is writing um, probably from prison waiting to be executed and we see him um, talking about i want to look at chapter four where he's basically kind of giving him some last encouragements and he says um i charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure uh, suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So I think very important thing to notice here, right? Like we talk about preach the word. Like that was my, my seminary's... Um, kind of motto in greek it says keruxon ton logon which means preach the word and um um so a lot of people who are preachers who will take this and kind of make it their life their life verse or something like that but i think that um it's not always clear to people who are reading this that when when paul is telling timothy to preach the word he's not actually saying preach scripture because as we've talked about before, Paul wasn't really aware, probably at this time, that he was writing scripture. He's not saying preach the New Testament. He's not even saying preach the Old Testament. That's not, the Old Testament wasn't really referred to as the word. We kind of refer to the word as scripture today. But um, the word was the gospel, actually. So if you do a study on the use of the word word in the pastoral epistles, so it's the word logos, if you use Bible web app and you look it up, then you'll see that often when he uses the word word or if he uses the word doctrine or teaching he's talking not about necessarily like this whole body of theology but he's talking about um, um which is what we would maybe think about today what he's talking about is the gospel which is the message of jesus that jesus came to save sinners that through repentance and faith in jesus that we can have life and forgiveness and and an eternity with god and a new heavens and new earth that we can pass through judgment and receive Jesus's righteousness, all those things. And so, um, and so what he's encouraging Timothy to do is to preach the good news about Jesus, 
to proclaim it um, as he's able. And so I think that's where I would connect it at the end in verse 5, where he says, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, saying that, that Timothy's been given this, um, this calling to um, go out and, and talk about Jesus to people and to bring them into the church as fellow Christians, as people uh, turn away from their sin and choose to follow Christ. So finally, we come to Titus, and Titus was another another church leader. We also get this this um, discussion of elders and kind of the the qualifications that are required of elders. Um, and then I th what I want to do is get to chapter two in Titus, where he says um, here. This is what I'm going to say as a key text here. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes into all of these um, things like older men are supposed to do this, w older women are supposed to do this, um, um, slaves are supposed to be a certain way. And so I think this is where I'm, I'm saying that he's moving from, th this is something where Titus could go, could read it out loud in the church and say, look what Paul's telling us to do, church. So it's not just for Titus, even though it's written to him, it's also for the whole church. And he says, um, he says, do all these things so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So this is something I want you to think about is that he's trying to, he, what he says here is that, is that as you are, for example, um, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness, reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine, teaching what is good, training um, training others, loving husbands and children, being self-controlled, pure, kind, submissive, all of these things, as people are these things, they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so, um, when you think about adorning something, right? So if I have like a, um, well, this just happened. My wife decided to buy an expensive piece of furniture that goes under my TV. And I don't know exactly what it does, but I think um, it looks nice is, <laughs> is what it's supposed to do. But um, it has a flat, a flat surface on it. It's basically like a, I think you'd call it a chest of drawers or something like that, or a, a dresser or something. And it sits under our TV and there's a flat surface on top. And it looks really blank right now. And so every day when I come home, I see like new things on there, like a like a vase or a flower pot or some like a wicker ball or a ball of twigs or something like that. Just like stuff that she picked up at Hobby Lobby. Um, like I don't, I don't really, I mean, I it looks nice. It looks nice. So I I and I appreciate what she's doing, but um, I would probably guess I would never been much for decorating. But anyway, um, she's adorning our mantle, right? And so there's this thing there that's cool, the chest of drawers, the dresser. Um, but then she is actually adorning it, making it look good by putting stuff on it. And so what Paul says here is that when we do these works that um, he's saying, when we live this kind of ethical lifestyle, that we're adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. So we're, and what I just said is if you do a study on the word doctrine, it usually means the word gospel, um, it usually means that message of Jesus, of, of salvation through Jesus. And so if you think about it, what he's saying is, I might believe 
and be a follower of Jesus personally within me. Um, but if I don't live in a particular way, then I'm not making that belief look good, right? I'm not adorning it with these good works, these good things that make it look good. And this is what I was saying when Paul has his eye on the way that the church lives its life impacts how people out, outside the church view it. So I want you to think about this. When people look at you, if you were a follower of Jesus, when people look at you, do they say, oh, wow, like that person has a belief that seems to have beliefs that are really motivating them to live in a very attractive way, right? In a very good looking way, in an, in a, an adorned way um, or not. Okay, so, so think about that. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I think it's easy often to, to think of many examples of times you've seen Christians or, or other um, um, seen followers of Jesus acting in a way that doesn't adorn the doctrine of God. You're like, man, why would I ever believe in that? Um, <laughs> follow, follow Jesus or whatever, or become a Christian. Um, it doesn't seem like it really makes a difference in your life at all. So you're kind of like, not <laughs> these people are not adorning the doctrine of God. They're not adorning the gospel. Um, but I want to make a differentiation here and say that the fault of that situation is not actually with the gospel itself. It's not with Jesus. It's not with the message of salvation. It's with the person who is not living that out well. Um, and so in one sense, we want to separate the two things and say, these are, you know, one is, one is something that's pure and good. And on the other hand, say, um, but how do we even know about it? How would we know that it's pure and good if it's just an idea that lives inside someone's head? Or it's just this, this kind of invisible quote unquote relationship that I have with God. Um, it needs to be lived out. And that's the only way I think that people actually see the difference that, that Jesus makes in the life of a believer is if it's actually lived out in such a way that it makes God's, um, the doctrine of God, the gospel look attractive. So, um, a lot going on here. Please write down your questions, bring them to class, and we'll be glad to discuss them.